Our scripture lesson tonight comes from 1 Samuel chapter 17. Hear now the word of the Lord from 1 Samuel chapter 17. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephesdamim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah, and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and the Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle, and the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and the third, Shammah. David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took the provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So it shall be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. 
When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. 
Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. This is the word of the Lord. You often hear sermons focus on, ah, what is the Goliath in your life? So, What's the big issue that you face? God, God was with David, and so God will be with you. So go out there and slay Goliath. Other sermons will say, ah, David defeated Goliath when he was young, so the church should value young people. It's not a bad point, it's just not the point of our text. Or, David was a man after God's own heart, so you should follow your heart. Now, there's something tragically absent from all of those approaches to this text. Uh, Christ? After all, the story of David and Goliath tells us, right up front, Goliath is too big, too nasty, too strong, you cannot defeat Goliath. We aren't David in this story. At best, we're David's brothers, cowering in the hills, hiding from Goliath. And by the way, that's, that's not the wrong place to be. What happens if Eliab, David's oldest brother, says, Ah, I trust God, I will go fight Goliath. Squash. Story is over. Because the point of the story is not, if you just trust God, you can defeat Goliath. The point of the story is, we need a spirit-anointed warrior who will go forth and defeat Goliath. Because nobody else has a chance against him. Now, the... The first time I preached on this passage, it, it, it happened to be on a Super Bowl Sunday. And, and so maybe it was that context that helped me notice this. But you will notice that our passage is divided into four quarters. And uh, right at the middle of the passage, right at halftime, there's a, a wardrobe malfunction. But really, this, this outline does show us what's going on in our passage as Saul gets benched, and the second string is brought in, and then, of course, after halftime, David gets ahead and takes the lead. Um, but the whole point of First Samuel 17 is to show that David is different from everybody else. In all of Israel, there is no one like David. You and I are not like David. And the first thing we see in the opening section is that Saul has failed as king. The king is supposed to go before his people and lead Israel into battle. But here is Saul sitting in the valley of Elah, dismayed and greatly afraid. We've seen in the first part of 1 Samuel that Israel has demonstrated their failure to live as the Son of God. And so God has rebuked them and given them a king to go before them. 
But now Saul has demonstrated that he is not going to live as a faithful son of God. And so both Israel and their king are quaking in their boots as Goliath of Gath stands there breathing threats and violence against Israel. Now, we can appreciate why Saul is wimping out. Goliath is an impressive opponent. Saul had been the consensus pick as king. He was head and shoulders taller than all the Israelites. And now he's faced with a man who is six cubits and a span, which that could be as tall as ten feet. Some ancient translations say four cubits and a span, seven feet. But since adult males generally, I mean, Saul is probably only like five, six, five, eight, something like that. So however tall that Goliath is, he's really tall. But it's not just size that affects Saul's judgment here. Because Saul knows that the Spirit has gone out from him. Since the Holy Spirit has departed from Saul, he has no illusions about his chances for success against Goliath. He knows he can't win. So we shouldn't blame Saul for not being the warrior king who goes up against Goliath. Saul knows, I don't have a chance. But Goliath challenges Israel to choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight against me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. Remember that. This will be important much in, in later in our story because throughout the rest of the book of Samuel, we will keep hearing about Gittites who follow David. I said earlier that at best, we are David's brothers cowering in the hills. Well, there's another good option. You could be a Philistine in this story. And you're like, wait, uh, the Philistines get slaughtered. Well, yeah, a lot of them do. Except for those who honor Goliath's word. And you're like, who, what, huh? Now, the text doesn't tell us the story in the sense of it doesn't say, and there were some who... But as you keep reading you will find in the book of Samuel over and over again, Gittites, people from Gath, Goliath of Gath, Gittites who follow David. It comes back to what Goliath said. There were honorable Philistines who they heard the word of their champion and they followed David because that's what he said. So at best, you might be David's brothers cowering in the hills or you might be a Philistine who believes and sees and when, he's, when, he, when you see the Lord, Yahweh, striking down your champion, you say, yes, Lord, you are my Lord. I'm following David too. It's another one of those great stories of how God did keep bringing Gentiles to himself, even at a time when Israel wasn't following him very well. Now, our text goes into great detail about Goliath, and besides his height, we hear about his coat of mail weighing probably around 125 pounds and a spearhead about 15 pounds. I mean, this, this dude is big, strong, gnarly. Nobody has a chance to defeat him in hand-to-hand combat. But if you've been paying attention to the previous chapter, we already heard that man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So Goliath's weighty appearance should not be the final consideration. Now, you may have noticed as we read that our, our, our text now sort of slows down. Verse 12 takes us away from the battlefield to the, the little town of Bethlehem. 
Now, David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. An Ephrathite of Bethlehem. Uh, Ephrathah was the old name of Bethlehem, and its use cannot be accidental. Bethlehem has played a key role in Israel's history, and especially in the book of Judges. The, the last two stories in the book of Judges are all about people from Bethlehem. And for that matter, the, the whole book of Ruth takes place largely in the little town of Bethlehem. So perhaps a better way of saying it is that the authors of Judges and Ruth paid special attention to Bethlehem because they're writing in the time of David or afterwards. But Bethlehem has a number of interesting roles in redemptive history, and particularly when it's called Ephrathah. What's going on here? Uh, Ruth mentions that Elimelech and his sons were Ephrathites. But who was buried in Ephrathah? Rachel, Jacob's beloved wife. Uh, The mother not of Judah. The mother of Joseph and of Benjamin. In other words, In our story, Rachel's blood flows not in the veins of David, but of Saul. But Saul is from the town of Gibeah, the town worse than Sodom and Gomorrah. While David is from Bethlehem Ephrathah, the town where Saul's foremother was buried. There's a way in which David is being given a connection to Rachel, even though she's not actually his mother. And this Jesse had eight sons. Now, given the prominence of the number eight in the scriptures, this is not an accident either. If, if David had been Jesse's seventh son, we would have spoken of the completeness of this number. But this is Jesse's eighth son, showing that completeness is not enough. Seven won't cut it. There must be one beyond the seventh. Just as... The eighth day worship of Israel showed that redemption required a day beyond the creation. The Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Tabernacles, not to mention circumcision and the consecration of the priests, are all about the eighth day, showing that there had to be a day beyond the seventh. So also, the eighth son of Jesse shows that redemption requires more than seven sons. At the end of the book of Ruth, in Ruth 4.15, Naomi is told that your daughter-in-law Ruth, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to a son, Obed, the father of Jesse, the father of David. David, now the eighth son, the one who goes beyond the seventh We heard in chapter 16 that David had been anointed by Samuel as the next king of Israel. And we heard also that David had great skill with the lyre. And that when he who had been anointed with the Holy Spirit played the lyre, King Saul, who now had an evil spirit from God, would be refreshed. Uh, So when we talk about David being the second string, second string... And David's going back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And as so David is, comes and plays for Saul, and then, then he goes back to Bethlehem. And now, uh, as David's going back and forth, Goliath is spending 40 days taunting the Israelites. Morning and evening he took his stand, and morning and evening Israel sat there dismayed and greatly afraid. And David is going back and forth. He's Saul's armor bearer. He's a court musician, but he still has domestic responsibilities at home. 
And in verses 17 and 18, we hear that Jesse sends David to the camp in order to see how his brothers were doing. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. Think about this. For 40 days, the two armies faced each other. Every morning, for 40 days, Goliath came and tempted Israel to say in their hearts, the nations are too strong for us. Back in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 7 through 10, there were three temptations that Israel faced in the wilderness. They parallel the three temptations that Jesus will face in the wilderness for 40 days. One of the temptations was, do not say in your hearts, the nations are too strong for us. Trust in the Lord to deliver you. This is one of the temptations of Deuteronomy 7. This is one of the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness. And Jesus' great-great-great-grandfather, David, faced it with Israel. And David heard him. Now, uh, the men of Israel say, have you seen him? David says, have you heard him? Who cares what he looks like? Man looks at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. Have you heard him? Do you hear what he says? David hears Goliath's challenge and remembers what Moses had said. Do not say in your heart, my enemies are too strong. And David hears what the people say. Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And he answers, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? These are the first words of David recorded in Holy Scripture. Do you see why he's called a man after God's own heart? In effect, David says, have you forgotten who you are? You are the army of the living God. And David hears what shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel. Now, note that everybody else is talking about Israel, is talking about the Philistines, is talking about everything horizontally. David's the one who sees, no, we've got a vertical problem here. We don't trust the Lord. And David understands that Israel's cowardice is a reproach. Goliath's taunts are a rebuke to a people who have failed to trust in the Lord. And again, like I said earlier, it's not that, oh, if somebody just trusted God enough, they could go defeat Goliath. No, actually, Goliath's presence is a demonstration that you have failed. You are not trusting in the Lord, and you can't defeat him. But Eliab, the eldest brother, grows angry with David, the little pipsqueak. Ah, why have you come down? Who is, with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Uh, it sure looks like Eliab may be a little on the jealous side. I mean, he had been passed over when David was anointed by Samuel. Here's his little brother, probably still a teenager, talking tough. But we often dismiss Eliab too quickly because we know the end of the story. Because from the middle of the story, Eliab looks like he's right. David's rebuking the troops for not going out and fighting Goliath. But what would have happened to Eliab if Eliab had volunteered? Eliab would have been crushed like a bug. So 
Eliab, in one sense, is actually right to say, David, what are you talking about? None of us can defeat Goliath. It's just what Eliab doesn't realize, hasn't quite noticed yet, that with the anointing of the Spirit, it's not that Eliab should have done this. It's that David's saying, no, this is what God has called me to do. The point of our text is that there is no Israelite who is big enough and strong enough to defeat Goliath. You cannot defeat Goliath. The big enemy in your life, the big situation, the thing that that torments you, the thing that you are troubled by, you cannot defeat it. You're not big enough. You're not strong enough. If somebody's battling cancer, you think you're big enough and strong enough to defeat cancer? If you're dealing with fear, anxiety, depression, you think you're big enough, you're strong enough to take on these things that have taken down kingdoms and nations? No. We're not big enough and strong enough. We should not expect ordinary Israelites to have success against Goliath and the house of Saul cannot defeat them. We need a spirit-anointed warrior to defeat the big ugly goon who is breathing threats and murder against the people of God. But as the words of David are, are, are heard when they're repeated before Saul, they bring David to Saul and, and David offers to fight Goliath. And Saul says, no way. After all, if Israel loses, if David loses, Israel has to submit to the Philistines. That's the, the terms of, of the, 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 the fight. But David says, wait, hold on. This uncircumcised Philistine is no different from the lions and bears I fought while protecting my sheep. And the key to David's confidence is found in verse 37. The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Notice David does not attribute his success to his own skill. It was the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the bear. And the Lord will deliver me from the paw of this Philistine. David's faith remembers God's faithfulness in the past and believes that God will continue to be faithful in the future. Now what's really striking to me is that this speech convinces Saul. Let's give Saul due credit, just the way our author wants us to do. Because listen to what Saul says to David. Go. And the Lord be with you. So, Saul has his moments. He, he is not going to succeed as the Lord's anointed, but he does recognize the Lord's anointed when he sees him, even if he doesn't quite realize what he's seeing. So, Saul gives David his armor, but um, since David's not used to armor, he takes it off. And instead takes five smooth stones from the brook and heads off to face Goliath with just his staff and a sling and five stones. Now, Goliath has challenged an Israelite to single combat. Now, the expectations of such combat, David should come down and fight hand to hand. Well, that would have ended quickly, armor or no armor. David's choice of a sling as his weapon actually neutralizes all of Goliath's advantages. David can stay at a distance, and most likely Goliath will never catch him. David can keep running around all day, slinging stones at Goliath until Goliath wears out. So, in theory, Goliath at this point could simply say, oh, come on, 
go away, I'm not fighting you. That's not what I signed up for. That's not what I challenged you to. I challenge you to hand to hand, bring, bring your spear, bring your sword, come on down here, let's fight. That's why the verbal back and forth is so important. Because as Goliath is taunting David and trying to chase him, David sort of talks back just fine, thank you, and says, oh, you think you're so big and tough. And so he taunts Goliath in return, which provokes Goliath to accept David's counterterms. We're not doing things hand-to-hand. You can do your hand-to-hand thing. I got my sling, and that's all we need. And so Goliath's response, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? curses David by his gods. Notice that our author does not wish to name Philistine gods, so he simply says, oh, and he did this. Our our author is very careful to avoid naming other gods here. But back when when the Lord went before his people to throw Dagon down earlier, Dagon was named as he fell on his face before Yahweh. But here, the Philistine gods are almost invisible. And David responds with the central theological point of the passage. You come to me, verse 45, with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. This is not about David and Goliath. This is about Yahweh against the gods of the nations. Except the gods of the nations aren't even worthy of being mentioned here. When God brought his people out of Egypt and established Israel as his son, the Exodus demonstrated the power of the Lord against Pharaoh and the gods of Egypt also being similarly dismissed. And even so, when God establishes David as his son, his victory over Goliath demonstrates the power of Yahweh against the gods of the Philistines in their not even worthy of being mentioned status. And when God establishes our Lord Jesus as his son, declaring at his baptism, this is my beloved son. Our Lord Jesus goes out into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by Goliath for 40 days. You see, this is why you cannot simply put yourself in David's shoes. You are not the Messiah. You are not God's anointed king who was chosen by God to deliver your people. You are the host of Israel, whom Goliath has threatened and insulted. You are the army of the God of Israel. And when our Lord Jesus cut down Goliath on the cross and overthrew the powers of sin and death and the devil, then we with all the heavenly hosts, come charging into the battle in order to rout an already defeated foe. We chase the armies of Satan and plunder his camp. If a preacher tries to tell you, you can fight Goliath, ask him, how? He's lying there dead with his head chopped off. Jesus has defeated Goliath. Goliath 
has been cast down. The imagery of David and Goliath fits beautifully with Paul's discussion of spiritual warfare. Our spiritual warfare is conducted against foes who are already defeated, but not yet utterly destroyed. The Philistines were defeated the moment Goliath fell. But the moment Goliath fell was not the end of the battle. Israel now has to follow David into battle. Jesus has defeated and bound the strong man, and we live in that little while in which the hosts of heaven are mopping up and plundering the strong man's house. And when you think about how Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, well, that's because the church is invading hell. The gates of hell. The only way you ever see the gates of hell is if you're on the offensive. If you're on the defensive, you're nowhere near hell. The gates of hell do not prevail because the church of Jesus Christ is going forward in the strength of our Lord Jesus Christ to plunder the strong man's house as we bring the good news of Jesus to the nations. So David has gotten ahead, uh, and he, he brings it to Jerusalem, which suggests that David may already have been thinking about where he wanted his future capital to be. And Saul takes note of David. Uh, David was already his court musician and armor bearer, but court musician, armor bearer, they're just servants. He had, he had heard about who David's father was back when he first met him, but he like, who, who, who's, who, whose father, whose son is he? This is important because... Saul had promised that whoever killed Goliath, his family would be free of taxation. And so he's got to figure out, okay, who, who, who am I making tax-free now? Uh, but when they bring David, still carrying the head of Goliath before Saul, Saul asks, whose son are you, young man? And he answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now, we are not like David. We are not the spirit-anointed king who defeats the enemies of the people of God. But if you want an example for how and who you should be, be like Jonathan. Because Jonathan responds to David with self-denying love. He denies himself, takes up his cross, and follows David. This is a striking, a striking thing. As Jonathan, who... I mean, no, he, he doesn't know all of this yet. This will come out in the subsequent chapters. But you can see already right here that Jonathan is the sort of man who will say, I don't need to be king. I don't care. Take my kingdom, please. You are the one God has called to lead us. I, and so I love you. I will follow you. And I will do whatever. And that's what, you know, as soon as, as soon as, David finished speaking to Saul. The soul of Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan makes a covenant with David. Now, here the language is, Jonathan makes a covenant with David. Part of it, this is the social relation between them. Jonathan is the prince, David is the commoner. So Jonathan makes a covenant with David. Later, they'll make a mutual covenant as Jonathan realizes, oh, you're actually going to be king. And so... The, the, the relationship changes, and by the end of the story, Jonathan will be asking David, please make a covenant with your servant, because Jonathan will recognize you are the one who will be king, not me. But that moment is already prefigured here, as if, if, if someone had, had said to Jonathan at this moment, oh, but David will usurp your place, Jonathan would have responded, thanks be to God, for this is one who will faithfully shepherd God's people. 
Jonathan denies himself, takes up his cross, and follows David. You and I are are not called to be the Spirit-anointed king. We are called to follow the Spirit-anointed king, to yield all that we have and all that we are to him. And so David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him. So that Saul set him over all the men of war. And this was good in the sight of the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Well, that, that sounds like Saul is being like Jonathan. But as we'll see, Saul does not yield all to David. Saul tries to use David for his own advantage. And this is the danger for us. Saul looks pious and good, but in reality, Saul is all about Saul. And we do that too when we try to use Jesus for our advantage, when we try to use God's spirit-anointed conqueror as our personal agent, when we try to seek our own kingdom. uh, We need to learn that if you will not bow to God's spirit-anointed warrior, pretty soon you won't have any kingdom left at all, and our little kingdoms of one disintegrate into nothingness. But if we are like Jonathan, then we say, Kingdom? (laughs) What kingdom? You are the one that I love. I will follow you. O Lord our God, have mercy on us and help us, we pray, because we too often try to build up our kingdoms and seek first our own advantage. Have mercy, O Lord, and forgive us. Renew us by your spirit-anointed warrior, your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. May his good spirit rest upon us, that we might be made more and more like him who loved us and gave himself for us, that we might deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus, and walk humbly before you, trusting that, that you will continue to do what you have promised, that you will continue to, to establish your kingdom, that your, your word will continue to go forth. We pray, Father, that even as your word has gone forth throughout all the nations this day, that your word would accomplish the purpose for which you have sent it, that, there, that many would believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized in his name, and that your, your gospel would triumph and flourish and increase and grow. Lord, have mercy. Help us in the coming week to live as those who belong to Jesus, as those who have, who have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer we who live, but Christ who now lives in us. Help us to live as those who belong to Jesus, as those who now love him and walk before you daily. Strengthen us now this night, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.